Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Wednesday, February 7th, and I'm Megan Marnicek, Executive Director of the Cleveland Transformation Alliance and moderator for today's forum. We are at the Happy Dog in Gordon Square for the City Club's monthly Takes On series. And tonight, we are taking on education journalism. Barriers to information and hostility in the field may be familiar territory for all journalists, but for the, those on the education beat, even traditional sources of education news, like school board meetings, have become divisive, generating equal parts controversy and spectacle. Tensions also continue to rise in higher education as colleges and universities grapple with on-campus demonstrations and legislation impacting both faculty and students. In a time when public trust in journalism is declining, how are reporters rethinking their approach as they cover K-12 and higher education? Joining me today to discuss this is Cameron Fields, journalist, coach, and instructional aide at Breakthrough Public Schools, Amy Morona, higher education reporter at Signal Cleveland, and Connor Morris, reporter and producer at IdeaStream Public Media. If you have a question, yeah. <laughs> If you have a question for our panelists, you can text it to 330-541-5794, and City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of tonight's program. Members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming our speakers to the Happy Dog. First off, I have to say what an honor it is to be here tonight and to see friends uh, in the audience, and I'm sure some listening live as well. I wanna jump in tonight and ask, could each of you tell us a little bit about how you came to a career in journalism? What drew you to this field? Oh gosh, uh, how much time do we have? Uh, the <laughs> long and short of it is, I think my parents who are watching on the live stream tonight could probably uh, tell it better than I, but I've always been asking questions and I've always really been naturally curious and uh, had no idea what I wanted to do, uh, but somehow folded all of that into becoming a journalist, uh, going to grad school, and my first job, uh, my first paying job, I should say, in journalism was at IdeaStream, actually, as a uh, education reporter, and I have just uh, been keeping up with the beat ever since. Thanks. Yeah, and so uh, then with me, I started off wanting to be a sports reporter, and then I did do that for a few years after college when I uh, graduated from Ohio University in 19. And then um, the p pandemic came, and I went into general news, was a general assignment reporter at Cleveland.com, and um, then I became an yeah, education reporter with the uh, Cleveland Promise series. But I just always like sports. I'm a basketball coach now, and it's kind of like I'm living my dream. So it's all, it's, yeah, it's just been like a good time getting to do different things. Uh, I got my start at the, the Worcester Blade at uh, Worcester High School. Um, I always liked reading and, and writing, and, uh, you know, from there uh, went to journalism school because I was like, oh, I could get paid to write. Uh, turns out not very much. <laughs> um, at least starting out anyway. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just really love listening to people. I love telling stories and uh, just uh, education as well as a really vibrant beat that is, is not covered very thoroughly in a lot of places. There's not often, you know, 
education reporters around anymore, unfortunately, due to cutbacks at newspapers. And so uh, it's pretty privileged to work at IDSM as an education reporter and cover local and uh, re regional news as well, and higher ed and uh, K through 12. So it's a big beat. So I want to build on that a little bit more. Um, and Connor, especially you just started to touch on it. Can you talk a little bit about the imp importance, in your opinion, of covering education specifically, and not only the importance to you for covering that beat, but also why you think it's important more broadly to the community? Sure. So uh, there's, you know, not very many reporters, uh, local reporters left anymore, unfortunately, because of cutbacks in newsrooms. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes it feels like I'm the only one, you know, either at a school board meeting or watching it. You know, there are other dedicated local reporters who I have so much respect for. But uh, there's, <coughs> and excuse me, I'm getting over some sickness as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's just not very many folks left that are doing the job. And it's very important because uh, there's a lot of tax dollars uh, at play here with these, uh, especially with these larger school districts you know, millions and millions of, of dollars going places. And it's, you definitely need uh, somebody to keep an eye on these things. And it, it's very important for sure. Also, it's important for the health of our society as well too, right? I mean, you know, uh, kids are, are the future as, as everyone likes to say, and uh, how we educate them, uh, you know, are we educating them well? Uh, the way in which we do it, um, you know, it's all important to track, but also there's a lot of politics at play too as well, uh, even at some school board meetings. Um, and so it's interesting to track that as well and see how things are kind of bleeding into the education space, especially, especially nowadays. Amy? Oh, my bad, sorry. I, was <laughs> uh, I am really fortunate because in addition to working at Signal Cleveland, I'm also part of another nonprofit newsroom called Open Campus. So Open Campus uh, started to put people like me covering colleges and universities in local markets. So what Open Campus does is it combines the strength and expertise of a national newsroom that focuses on one thing, which is higher education, with the expertise of a local newsroom that really knows its community. So I basically have two teams, which is great. Uh, a lot of cooks in the kitchen, a lot of editors looking at your drafts, but it's a, a, good, a good problem to have. But I think higher education specifically, I'm really fortunate that that's all I cover. You know, Connor, he, like you said, is covering K-12, higher ed throughout a huge region. That's a lot for one person, especially. Indeed. So <laughs> I, uh, I am really fortunate that right now I'm just covering Cleveland's three biggest colleges. So that's Case Western Reserve University, which is a private institution, Cleveland State, which is a public institution, and Cuyahoga Community College, which is a two-year public institution. So honestly, covering each of those institutions could be their own beat. It's a lot going on at colleges and universities, and that's what I really hope my work centers on and kind of illuminates for people, because you might think, eh, I didn't go to Cleveland State, or oh, I didn't go to Tri-C. Well, first off, you know, you probably know someone who did, because the majority of people who live in an area go to college, if they go to college, in their own communities. I think the radius is like 90 minutes, 90 miles from their hometown. So there's that, but also colleges and universities are really important. They have lots of roles. They are employers to people in our communities. They're economic drivers. They're landowners. There's a lot of power at play. So, you know, I really feel fortunate to be able to dive into that landscape every day and try to 
digest it, and more so make it digestible for our audiences. Cam? Yeah, just um, going when Sue, I went into the Cleveland's Promise series. I'm not sure if uh, everyone's familiar with that, but that was the series that uh, Cleveland.com did uh, analyzing the different lives of, of a school named Elmira Elementary on the west side, uh, not too far from here, uh, close to Lorraine Avenue. And so when I was doing that, I wasn't really, I didn't have really have a lot of experience with project style reporting. And when I first was approached about it, I thought it was going to be more um, like a board meeting kind of like beat, like more traditional education. And I was like, oh, like I don't know, like I don't really have a whole lot of experience doing that. But then uh, my editor, uh, Layla Atasi at Cleveland.com, she had mentioned that it was more of an immersive style sort of approach. And I was like, okay, that kind of seems kind of cool. So I went into it and it was so awesome because uh, Hannah Drone, well, I forget her, because um, she just got married, but her, <laughs> that her maiden name is Drone, but she recently got married. So we went into the school, Elmira, and we were really welcomed by the staff, by the students. And it was just so awesome working with them every day, getting to see the different challenges that they went through um, and I saw just how much that they really needed so I really just became yeah, really passionate about you know teaching about education and I was like this is kind of what I want to do so I really enjoy what I'm doing now I'm a one-on-one -on -one, uh, with a student at Citizens Academy Southeast and so I work uh, yeah one-on-one -on -one with uh, him and he's just yeah really awesome to work with and, and help him with his needs that's amazing. So Cameron, you're essentially saying that this, this journalistic experience you had led you to maybe rethink a career path or took you down a new path anyway. Is that, is that what you're sharing? Yeah, definitely. Um, even in college, I had thought about not necessarily being a teacher, but definitely had always thought about coaching. Like I took a coaching class my senior year of college. And so I even had like my own like Instagram page uh, it was called like Coach Cam, and I had like different uh, basketball videos on there. So it's just been really cool to kind of see that uh, dream manifest. Uh, just because like I have like the kids, they call me Coach Cam and mm -hmm. stuff, and I like check on them every day in the school, make sure that they're doing okay and things like that. So that's been really awesome. I feel like I think educators deserve a round of applause. So I'm going to take a minute to say. <laughs> Thank you for your work, Cameron, thank, thank and thank you. you for doing that. So in the opening remarks, I said, journalists are rethinking their approach to how they cover their beats. What has that looked like for each of you in your own journalistic experience? I can take that. So before I came to Signal, we just launched. We're the new nonprofit newsroom in Cleveland. Check us out at signalcleveland.org. <laughs> Subscribe to our newsletters. Sorry, shameless plug. <laughs> uh, but before I came to Signal, I was working at Cranes Cleveland Business, still in partnership with that national newsroom, Open Campus. But when I was at Cranes, I was covering 25, the nearly 25 higher education institutions across the region. So that that's a lot. <laughs> and so uh, I was fortunate to do that. That was a great experience. But now my focus, again, has really shifted to just those three colleges here in Cleveland. And so because of that, I'm able to dive in a little bit more. And I kind of focus my work, or try to focus my work primarily on two big pillars. One is who is getting to and through college. 
And then the other one is kind of just looking at how these institutions, again, wield their power and, you know, looking at how uh, just trying to keep holding them accountable. So, uh, and also kind of the power of place, so I guess three pillars. The power of place, again, talking about how higher education institutions really can impact all of us in a region. So uh, TLDR, it's easier now that I only focus on three colleges, but it's still uh, something that's, you know, big to um, chew off. But because of that now, I can really focus on talking to students a lot, which is something that's really important to me and that I'm, I feel fortunate that I can highlight their stories and amplify their voices in my work too. Um, yeah, just going into the Cleveland's Promise a series. So that started 2021-22 school year when uh, the students at Elmira that we followed were in the fourth grade. So yeah, followed them fourth and fifth grade. I think that when that project first started, a big thing was establishing that trust, right? So you got to be able to, you know, have the have you know your subjects know that you're in it with them, and like we were truly like in the process with them. So every day like I went to school it, it felt like almost like I was a teacher I mean I wasn't um, doing lesson plans or anything like that or doing any uh, differentiation but you do have to be aware of the different um, factors that a child is facing each day so I, each hour uh, even just because there's different things going on throughout the day uh, there might be something going on at home bothering them and their uh, with their family life so I just think that um, in the educational world, relationship rituals and routines, that's heavily stressed. And that is, you know, so important uh, with the structure. I mean, with kindergarten now, um, I just feel like that structure is important, but unstructured time is, is key too, uh, just because there is so much like drawn out time, like kids need time to kind of just doing their own thing too and figure things out. But I think that having those relationships, rituals, routines through the reporting, um, checking in with them every day. Like we had like our own back kind of like tutoring desk almost and like kids would like come over and be like, Mr. Fields, like Ms. Drone. And, and you know, we would just like talk with them and, and work on their schoolwork and, and really just observe and get to know them. And so for me, uh, I was a general assignment reporter down in Athens uh, for my first like seven years of being a journalist and I was covering board of ed meetings and K through 12, but also cops and courts and all sorts of stuff and came up to Cleveland about four years ago. So I'm still really getting to know the region a little better, even though I went to high school in, in Worcester. Um, but uh, for me, you know, covering a lot of board meetings, uh, checking out uh, you know, what the latest is with the colleges, uh, trying to follow other report, good, great reporting that's been going on. Um, but also trying to make, kind of make personal connections with folks. Um, I work with a group of students at CMSD. Uh, it's, it's, they I run a, like volunteer to run a uh, blog that the students work for. Uh, it's a really cool, rewarding experience. And that's a good way to get some kind of personal connection with the students. and. A little bit of mentoring going on there as well too. It's really rewarding. Um, it's, again, I don't know if I mentioned that uh, they're called the Unsilenced Voices of CMSD. Uh, they came up with the uh, the name themselves, um, and uh, yeah, just uh, it's it's been a lot of fun. But really, uh, yeah, trying to make some more connections is really key uh, with teachers' unions, teachers, uh, you know, uh, parents, kids, uh, board of ed members. Uh, really, just trying to get to know folks. And if you're listening and you want to talk, you got a story idea, uh, feel free to send me an email. <laughs> 
So Amy, I want to turn to you for a minute. Um, colleges and universities were hit hard like many organizations by the COVID-19 pandemic. Many saw enrollment drop and enrollments drop and budgets go down. How are they reacting and what do you think it means for higher education, not only in our region, but really nationally? Oh gosh, that too could be its own panel. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, the pandemic, I like to uh, uh, maybe reframe a little bit. It really amplified a lot of challenges that may or may not have been going on at universities in terms of enrollment, in terms of finances, et cetera. So it really has made institutions kind of step back reevaluate their strategies and take another look as they're going forward. And uh, I'm sure any higher ed folk in the room could maybe attest there is typically a stereotype about higher ed, right? That higher ed is really slow to change. Like, yeah, people uh, have often said, you know, higher ed kind of goes kicking and screaming to a new, a new chapter, but they couldn't do that in the pandemic. So because of all of the, the challenges that you mentioned, all of the uprooting institutions have really adapted quickly. And we've seen a lot of different changes in terms of strategies, in terms of outreach that we probably wouldn't have seen uh, had there not been a pandemic. So that's been really interesting to keep tabs on. Thanks, and as a follow-up to that, I'm interested in, um, in a previous response, you mentioned that you've had the opportunity to talk more with students and engage more with, with their experience on a campus. Are students concerned or even aware of some of the actions that have been happening in our Ohio General Assembly that have been targeted towards higher education? I'm thinking in particular about House Bill 83 and maybe some other um, recent actions by our state legislature. For sure, I can't speak for them, but definitely I know students now more than ever are very engaged with uh, what's happening, especially I think of uh, the Ohio Students Association, for example, has various chapters across Northeast Ohio, across the state. That's a group that's very engaged uh, in, in that work and doing their own work uh, in response to that. But I think it's really important to remember too, while those, you know, everything that's going on in Columbus is super important, college students are also juggling so much outside of the classroom that, you know, the average age at Cleveland State, for instance, is 27 years old. People oftentimes uh, are caretakers, are parents, are working multiple jobs. So they are just trying to get to and through uh, and that, that can be a lot. So maybe mm -hmm. keeping tabs on what's happening in Columbus might not be uh, their number one priority, but I think it is safe to say that students now are more plugged in than ever before. Cameron, you really had a unique opportunity to work directly with young people through the Cleveland Trauma Series. What do you hope the community really gained through that unique reporting opportunity? Um. Yeah, I really hope that the community sees that just overall education needs to be more funded. Uh, there were a lot of donations uh, made to the school, which was really awesome to see mm -hmm. as, a, as a part of the series. So like there were a lot of clothes donated, uh, like really a lot of clothes. And that's something that may seem small, um, but is really big for you know a lot of different communities in Cleveland. So I just feel like there needs to be more wraparound support in a lot of the schools. Like I know with CMSD, some of the schools are uh, say yes, Cleveland schools, meaning that, yeah, they get that wraparound support where there's a, um, a coordinator where they help with clothes, um, hygiene, just even like, um, you know, rent, rental assistance, uh, things like that. So I just hope that people see that 
even with that, there needs to be more just in the overall system of how everything can come together because it's not just education like in a vacuum. There's like education and then there's housing with that. That's also um, connected to it. There's food insecurity. There's um, all these things, you know, connected to education that ex impacts the students' experiences. So I hope that people realize that uh, education needs to be more funded uh, overall through that series. Yeah. <laughs> Connor, you are covering the greater Cleveland area for Ideas Dream and really this, this really large region. I'm interested, what are some of the similarities that you're seeing um, amongst the school districts, higher education institutions? What are they all facing across the region? And are you seeing any exciting innovations that yeah. we can try to replicate around the region as well? Yeah, so on the higher ed front, it's that dreaded uh, demographic cliff, uh, you know, where the number of high school age students is shrinking, and so there's fewer students to, to kind of, uh, uh, kind of battle for so they're all trying to figure out you know what kind of new programming do we need do we need to cut old programming you know we saw cuts at uh, Youngstown State not that long ago mm -hmm. um, you know in the K through 12 space uh, you know some of the highest poverty rates in the the state uh, are you know Cleveland and Akron which I cover both heavily um, and so you know people always look at the test scores in these these uh, school districts that are serving impoverished kids and they say well they're really low why is that the case and it's like well you start to look at the poverty rate you look at what as Cameron was mentioning what these kids are dealing with outside of the classroom and inside the classroom of course as well uh, and you start to recognize that you know something is is, is wrong here that's why uh, the, these scores are low and also too the, the test scores aren't necessarily as a lot of advocates will tell you, they aren't the, the be all end all in terms of uh, how well a school is actually preparing kids for you know, uh, life uh, down the road. And that's another trend that I've noticed is a lot of uh, K through 12 schools are trying to do more career tech. So uh, especially in Akron, CMSC is doing it as well too, where trying to do more career experiences, uh, trying to get kids uh, to you know, latch onto a career for the future. So uh, you know, whether it's being a mechanic or you know even some in the arts as well too, so they're trying to do more specialized programming um, as well to try to better prepare kids for the future, not just teaching to the test so to speak. And so some pe folks applaud that, and and you know that's one thing that I've been seeing for sure as well. So I'm interested in an era when so many distractions are competing for our attention. How do you balance engagement or clicks with your stories with telling the whole story or every story? I feel really fortunate to be in a newsroom that doesn't prioritize clicks but does prioritize engagement. And by that I mean we are trying news in different ways and being in the community. We have a whole community team who focuses on connecting with people. Uh, my work is different at Signal than in other places in my career because I'm able to do work that also, in addition to holding institutions accountable and telling people's stories, also provides resources and guides that can help people access higher education. I did a guide for the new uh, and improved, they say, FAFSA to help people <laughs> navigate uh, that. Uh, my colleague Camille and I worked on a series about first generation college students giving them a platform to share their stories in their own voices and then we made a corresponding guide 
that can help people um, navigate, you know, if they're the first person in their families, like I was, to attend college, to help them kind of navigate the hurdles that they might uh, be facing. And then again, with my work with Open Campus, I'm able to couple that engagement efforts with people who really know the ins and outs of higher education and can help me drill down my focus and my stories to connect directly with the audience. So I feel really fortunate to be part of essentially two newsrooms that are really trying to do news differently and reach and connect with people where they are, no matter how that format looks, feels, and is, are able to try new things. Some things work, th some things don't, but we're trying and we're active and that's really important to me and to us. Um, yeah, just going back to the experience that I had uh, in journalism, uh, can't really attest to that now, but just to the experience that I had, I know that we weren't really trying to go for so much quantity, but more so quality. Uh, so yeah, we really wanted to make sure that the stories that we were pushing out were very, um, you know, intentional, very like deliberate, and that each one had a purpose uh, in the series. So I think that the series that I was on really didn't focus so much on clicks and being like, we got to get this out. because. Even so, like we took a while to even just launch in general. Like we had stories already written, uh, like months before we actually like launched everything. So it it took you know we you know, it took the time to to get everything together in terms of having everything, you know, aligned. But I think that that was good because it made for a pretty good series. Something I've been learning a lot about over the last four years is this thing called solutions journalism, and it involves a lot of sharing back with people after you report on a story. So I try to incorporate that as best I can. Sometimes I run out of time and just kind of forget. Uh, I'm trying to get better about that, but sharing back with people is really important. Um, as well, you got to think about, okay, so for me, I have to balance breaking news. So if something's happening, I got to cover it, of course, but you know, what's coming after that what maybe would the tv stations the other folks that are covering the breaking news gonna miss after it and that's what i really try to look at down the road because i think that's where some of the most interesting stories are for mm -hmm. sure i think what i've been fascinated by through um being up here tonight and and hearing more about each of your experiences it is that there's so many different types of newsrooms and there's different types of journalistic experiences and um, I think we feel I feel fortunate that we have these various options here um, for us to be good uh, consumers of, of good journalism can you talk a little bit about um, kind of having that space for multiple different journalistic resources in town and and what that feels like from the inside if that makes sense I think uh, for me it's time and it's the power of time and that uh, is a really important resource in all kinds of things in life, right? But especially in reporting, uh, I recently did a story about uh, Cleveland State University potentially being in, let me phrase this correctly, Cleveland State University poten talking to potentially absorb Notre Dame College, lots of coulds potentially, all of those asterisks there. <laughs> Uh, but I was able to do that because I had time. So of course I was juggling multiple things at one time as we all do, but uh, in that particular story, I 
cold reached out to 37 sources. And uh, it was the 38th source that helped me connect the dots uh, on that story. But a lot of newsrooms, you would never get the time or the ability to reach out to that many people. So I feel lucky to be in a newsroom that supports the actual art of like shoe, leather, nitty, gritty. I don't want to knock on anyone's door unsolicited. <laughs> but the equivalent of, you know, sending emails and LinkedIn messages and people that really value uh, you know, authentic reporting versus those clicks and those headlines and clickbait that we typically uh, see in the industry. So to me, that is uh, a great part of being in a nonprofit newsroom that looks to be relevant daily, but is not a daily newsroom. Yeah, just um, going what off Amy mentioned about time, it, you know, as a journalist, it is always good to have that time just because you know you can really be patient with it and, and get as many you know perspectives as possible. So I know going back to my general assignment reporting, it was a lot more fast paced, like you have to get sometimes articles out like in 10 minutes, but when I was on the project, it was a lot more um, <coughs> purposeful, yeah, like reporting. Like you had to be like, okay, we're gonna, do first of all too, yeah, we had to keep everyone basically anonymous. Um, you know, we didn't want to have anyone identified, so that was, uh, a hurdle too that I wasn't really used to. I never really had used like pseudonyms um, for the sources. So that was a barrier. But then just getting to know everyone too, getting those relationships built because I mean, the, you know, the people at the school, like they were great, but they were just like anyone. They were like, ah, like they're not used to having like reporters like in the <laughs> school. Like they're, they're like, whoa, like what's going on? You know, um, and the students are like, who were, I think they thought that we were teachers. I know some of them thought that like we were actual teachers uh, for a little bit because when I went into teaching, they were like, are you gonna come back and stuff like that? Like they thought like I was like, a teacher there, but um, building like those relationships uh, in journalism, I think is really the, uh, the foundation of the business. Yeah, so I, I uh, need to do audio reporting on top of, uh, you know, uh, stuff for our website as well. And so that's an interesting mix. And I wasn't a, uh audio journalist, you know, so props to IdeaStream for, for teaching me that. Uh, uh, so that's been an interesting experience to kind of balance the, the different needs of different mediums, uh, you know, getting stuff out on social media, you know, uh, but also trying to, you know, make sure that I've got a uh, what's called a cut and copy uh, where you have a somebody's soundbite in the middle of, of uh, you know, the host talking or a uh, rap mm -hmm. where you record yourself speaking and then you got somebody else's bite in the middle. So it's very interesting for sure to kind of balance that up. Um, as well, the different uh, media, uh, different kind of stories that you're trying to tell, uh, you know, you'll be con cultivating, as Amy was talking about, you'll be cultivating relationships with people for months, uh, even years sometimes before you really get to a point where you do a big story on, on occasion. So. That can take a lot of time and effort, but it's also cool too because you get to get to know the person better and you kind of cultivate that relationship better. You get better <laughs> quotes, you just get better stuff in general as well. I do a lot of talking to folks uh, on background. Uh, so, you know, not necessarily to for, for print, uh, but uh, then that leads me to uh, places where I can request records. I'm like, oh, there's this interesting schedule, or there's, there's this budget uh, that I need to request uh, from this certain time frame. Let me go get that, you know. So it's it's helpful just again to build those relationships of over time. So we're about to transition to the audience Q and A, but I'm going to ask one more question and ask for you to 
try to respond in a couple couple words, but I warn you, it's a loaded question. So <laughs> what is your hope for today's students who seem to face so many challenges? And how can we, the audience here in person and listening live, how can we help? I told you it was loaded. (laughs) Save the humdingers for the end. Uh, Let's see. I think support, uh, however that looks like uh, for you in your life, is uh, super important in encouraging the students to keep asking questions and keep going along their educational journey, no matter how that might look different than yours or look different than what you think it should look like. Uh, Yeah, just that support is important. Um, you know, just like for my students overall, I want them to have a peaceful life and not just uh, in the future. I want them to uh, have some sort of peace now, um, you know, because you, you see the different things that, you know, maybe are going on at home. And then, you know, they students, you know, act out at school sometimes, too. So that can be really uh, heartbreaking to see sometimes just because you know, you do care for them and you see like that the potential that they have. So uh, seeing that, I just kind of want them to live a peaceful life. Yeah, along that same vein, if I was picking like three words, you know, I'd I'd say health, hope, and understanding, I think, are what these kids deserve. Uh, They need a, a stable living environment. They need people that understand them and they need, uh, you know, something that instills hope for a good future. I think that's a good place to stop. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. For our live stream audience or those just joining us, I'm Megan Marnicek, Executive Director of the Cleveland Transformation Alliance and moderator for tonight's conversation. Joining me on stage is Cameron Fields, journalist, coach, and instructional aide at Breakthrough Public Schools, Amy Morona, higher education reporter at Signal Cleveland, and Connor Morris, reporter and producer at IdeaStream Public Media. If you are here with us in person, you can line up next to the microphone to my left to ask your question. If you are joining us virtually or prefer to text your question, you can text it to 330-541-5794. City Club staff will try to work them in. We actually have a lot of text questions coming in right now. Um, so please, if you're in the audience and you're texting, please don't be shy and come right up here <laughs> and ask your question. Um, uh, so this is actually directed to Connor. You were recently prevented from covering demonstration on Case Western's campus. Do you have concerns about our First Amendment right to a free press here in Cleveland? And is this going beyond the snail's pace response to public records requests? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so that Case Western's a private campus. They can decide who gets to go, you know, where, what. So I was covering a protest around the university president's response to the Israel-Palestine uh, Palestine conflict. Um, and uh, uh, I did the right thing, I think, by reaching out in advance and said, hey, I'm, I'm coming to campus to cover this protest. Do you guys have a response to anything these protesters are saying? And a spokesperson told me, uh, no, we don't really have a response. And also, you can't come on campus. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, again, they're a private institution. They could do what they want. But, you know, from years of covering colleges, normally the environment on campuses, you know, we're trying to facilitate the free flow of, of ideas. You know, uh, that's kind of the, the point of universities, folks say. So it was a little funky to see that happen. Um, but, you know, uh, 
when I've had experiences with the other colleges in the area that are, are public institutions, I've usually been welcomed on a campus. Uh, anytime that I reach out to you know CMSC or Akron, typically for a project where I, I need to go into the school, they work with me. Uh, I can they even help me find teachers and, and parents and students to talk to. So it's a challenge, you know, um, at times. But also, you know, as you mentioned, the snail's pace of public records. Uh, that's another thing that can really uh, inhibit the free flow of information because sometimes it can take a long time to get uh, records back that you that you want to share with the public. Can I jump in really quick just to respond? I think, you know, we are kind of talking about the evolution of journalism, how things have changed. Something that's really fascinating, I think, uh, and frustrating, if I'm being frank, at times, at times, uh, is how institutions, uh, Connor, you kind of touched on this, cultivate and sculpt their own images uh, now that I think is probably different than if you were covering higher ed like 20 years ago. And it's kind of reflective of the journalism industry too, right, in terms of social media, uh, press offices, et cetera. And as Connor said, private institutions, they have their right to welcome us on or off campus. Public institutions typically are uh, more welcoming. But I do think it's interesting to watch how universities talk directly with their students, with their prospective students, with their communities, with their stakeholders. And I think it's fascinating to see how that has evolved uh, over time and uh, where we are right now. All right, uh, thank you. Uh, so my name is Ben Lewis, and my question is for anyone who would like to answer it. Uh, so there have been very significant changes in leadership in the education landscape in Cleveland over the past two years. Um, there's new CEOs at CMSD, at Breakthrough Public Schools, uh, newer presidents at CSU and Tri-C. Um, so what do you think are the potentially positive and potentially negative consequences of so many changes happening in such a short time span? Um, yeah, I can take that one. I think that you know, with CMSD and, and Breakthrough, you know, it's always good to have, you know, change, you know, things like that too. Just because, you know, having a new voice can have, you know, new ideas, new perspectives. But I think that just in education overall, we really like, just as an industry, like we really need to get into it and see like, okay, what do we really need to do instead of just um, having like different like, maybe think pieces done or like different maybe like committee meetings or stuff like that or like we really need to be more about action um sometimes i feel like you know the people that i work with we're all like in the weeds but you know sometimes i just feel like we're not really um supported as much you know as we could be so i think that you know we could have more you know people support us just in terms of how because the kids are struggling so the kids really need help especially like with literacy um like literacy like is a big issue not just in cleveland but overall in the whole nation so i think that staff needs more support so that the students can get more support i'll jump in too and ben to your point you noted all of those changes happening at one time i would say maybe at least from the coverage standpoint, that's an advantage because these there's all new storylines, all new personalities coming in and the way that they collaborate with each other has been really fascinating to follow. And also as someone who 
admittedly did not grow up in Cleveland. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. I married a Browns fan, so all is well uh, <laughs> on that front. But, you know, I have found uh, Cleveland is a town where people ask, where did you go to high school? You know, and that extends even to our leadership <laughs> as well. So to see people who aren't from Cleveland coming in and taking over these roles and trying to navigate a town that, uh, you know, in some cases is an old boys town or an old boys club has been really interesting to see how uh, they respond to that environment. And it's not just been education institutions too, it's been, you know, Cleveland, you know, mayor, uh, you know, there's been county council, the Cleveland Foundation, there's been a whole, in the last, my last four years, I feel like everyone's <laughs> swapped, you know, swapped out. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, we have another text question. So as the panel mentioned, politics influenced schools. At, at, the time law, wait, at the time laws come out of the political process, as journalists, how do you learn how K through 12 and higher ed institution practices are changing in response to the laws, or in some cases, maybe aren't meeting the mark? For example, Ohio's recent dyslexia law, oh, there are probably many examples of this. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's challenging because you'll you'll ask the school districts when these things first happen, and they're like, "We're reviewing," you know, and then you'll you'll eventually see what happens down the road a little bit. But, um, you know, uh, in in terms of politics in general, uh, you know, we covered this fall quite a bit. Um, how national politics are influencing. I know this isn't exactly what the the texter was asking about, but uh, how national politics are really influencing some school board races and. You're not really seeing it so much in Cleveland and Akron, but you're really seeing it in these suburban areas that are not as uh, politically heterogeneous, you know, so to speak, um, where, you know, you really are seeing, seeing things that people would say, well, that doesn't really have much have to do with education, you know, but uh, there will be these conflicts, you know, that are, that are kind of bigger than just the school district. Uh, questions around uh, transgender students' use of, of bathrooms and um, all sorts of other hot button issues that people are kind of forcing, they're bringing into the uh, the debates that that weren't you know necessarily there before. So that's been interesting to see. And then at, with the state legislature level here in Ohio, we've been seeing uh, a lot of attempts to you know wrangle you know low student test scores, low reading scores um, to to mix results you know so far. And so that's been interesting to watch as well. Um, in, in Akron, uh, there was a dispute uh, just last week over a, uh, there was a law that the state, well, the, in the state's last budget, they put money in for high dosage tutoring for reading. Uh, and the teachers union uh, was like, this should be our job, we should be doing this. And they, they really kind of put the kibosh on that. So that was interesting. That's another thing that I didn't get a chance to mention, but uh, the labor relations uh, perspective is very interesting in education right now. We had a strike down in, over at, uh, uh, Youngstown State or, or Youngstown Schools uh, just last year, so it's been pretty interesting. Uh, I think going back to the text question for me, my colleagues at Open Campus again, which is that national nonprofit newsroom, OpenCampusMedia.org. Sorry, I feel like I got to plug them too. Uh, but I have colleagues across the country, but I very much follow my colleagues at the Texas Tribune and at, uh, my fellow reporters at the Tampa Bay Times. And I see what's going on in Texas. I see what's going on in Florida in terms of the state houses, in terms of higher ed. And then I see how that translates to Ohio, may or may not, but 
uh, I particularly keep eyes on what's happening in those two states, and I'm fortunate to have friends that are doing such great work covering those states, so I follow that. Uh, and I also watch a lot of meetings, go to a lot of BOT meetings, Board of Trustees meetings at the two public institutions I cover. I watch faculty senate meetings, I put in a lot of records requests, and I call people who are far smarter than I will ever be in Columbus, in Cleveland, and I ask them to explain me things that I <laughs> don't understand, which of, there are many, so that is also helpful. Do you have a question? Yep. All right, we got a question, here we go. Hi, my name is Jake Taylor. Uh, I moved back to Cleveland about five years ago. Uh, one thing I've noticed with the small towns, like everyone seems to know everyone or is like one or two degrees of separation from other <laughs> folks. Uh, and also like funding sources seem to be pretty narrow, like a lot of the funding comes from a few institutions. And just wondering if you could comment on how that does or doesn't affect your ability to like do hard reporting <laughs> and uh, I don't know, just like the, the components of a small city and your ability to, to find facts and tell stories. Uh, okay, I think, thank you, great question. Uh, I think there's two points there that I'll kind of split up in terms of funding and how we're funded. Signal Cleveland is a nonprofit newsroom. We're supported uh, by the American Journalism Project uh, as well as local and national funders, all of which are disclosed on our website. It's very clear we are very transparent. No one can give money without being listed on our website. So we are very upfront about that. And so, for instance, if I'm doing a story uh, that has a reference or a tie to the Cleveland Foundation. I note that in our story, and so uh, there are so many layers baked in that I don't have any interaction or any, no one has ever told me not to cover a story because of funding or because of uh, potential funding. So I feel lucky in that, and I think that is the case for most nonprofit journalism, uh, newsrooms, public media newsrooms. There are many levels baked in, so the bias or uh, potential bias doesn't doesn't happen. And then going back to uh, your you know, levels of connection, the old Boys Town, I think that's kind of what I noted earlier. It's again just fascinating to watch people who are not from Cleveland come in and both respect the tradition that we have in this town, right, of people being really proud and really amped that we are from here and we stay here. That's really important to the fabric of the region, but you also have to be really welcoming to newcomers or people who maybe uh, you know, what is they always say about sports, like the gets us factor. So it's interesting to watch that, those two dynamics at play, how those play out at, a, at an institution. Well, I'll just add, at Ideastream, we are supported by listeners like you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, we have another text question. With the changing roles at many higher education institutions around DE&I and more, and by rules, I think they mean perhaps laws. Have you seen changes in the way journalism school curriculum is taught or even a shift in those even opting to take up the degree? Oh gosh, I mean, I truthfully have not kept up with changing journalism school curriculums. I love this profession, but I think if I was getting into it today, I might have far more uh, hesitations, honestly, than when I you know, went to school 10 years ago. So uh, I don't know, Connor, do you have anything to add <laughs> on that front? Yeah, um, yeah just go on Huff, similar to what Amy was saying. Um, I kind of talk with my friends about this a lot because I graduated five years ago, but I think that um, J schools now, I don't know if I would like encourage a person to <laughs> go into journalism now, 
um, I would be hesitant, yeah, as well, if I was going into uh, college now to major in journalism just because it is such a, a difficult path, um, especially just with legacy media basically dying out. Um, there's been layoffs like at a lot of the big time uh, legacy media places like the Los Angeles Times, for example. Um, I just feel like it's very difficult to have that dream job uh, that you want. And not that the dream job is the end all be all, but I just feel like it's even like with me, like I felt like it was going to be difficult for me to really get where I wanted to go um, in terms of, you know, being a sports writer. I was a freelancer for a little bit and then the pandemic came and I was like, yeah, I'm done freelancing. Like it was just <laughs> it was just too much like moving all over the place and. I just feel like it's it takes a special person to be in the profession. I really commend uh, Connor and Amy for, for doing it just because it is such a hard time uh, in journalism right now. Well, I commend you for being a teacher also, oh my God. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'll just add that you know, the number of news, news jobs in Ohio has shrunk by like, what, 40% in the last like 20 years or so? I mean, it, it's it been a significant. It seems amplified too, sorry to interrupt, but just like this yeah. past week, the past few weeks, it's yeah, it's even, even more yeah, magnified. Yeah, absolutely. On the DEI front, I'm not sure exactly what the texter was asking, but you know, I, I didn't really notice a heavy emphasis, but I graduated in 2014, so I mean, it's been some time, but I mean, we have seen like DE, and what he says, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programming. I mean, that has increased at a lot of colleges in the last probably 15, 20 years or so. Um, you know, you'll see offices on campus devoted to, there'll be like an LGBTQ center and there'll actually be, you know, one or two staff there. So you, we have seen some of that increase in Ohio, but I don't think that that's really affected the curriculum all that much necessarily. I think that there's sometimes a disconnect for people there sometimes when they're talking about DEI. Text question, it says, I work in a school, but studied journalism in college. How can schools better inform journalists about what is going on in the schools? How mm. can we work together to make the public more aware of how students can be supported? Cameron, I feel like that's you. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah I mean, I, you know, there's, at J schools, there's multiple classes that you can take. So maybe, you know, a J school could offer an education journalism class. Mm. Like I know at OU, there was um, a sports writing class, there's an editing class, there's a uh, magazine writing class, there's a whole bunch of like different like niche classes that you can take. And so I think that, you know, if you're a J school, like having an education journalism class would be the way to go. And then having your students uh, go to different area schools around the, around the college, uh, especially if, like it's a college town, there's gonna be schools around there, um, neighborhood schools. So. I think that, you know, students getting that experience because I think, you know, with OU, I'm not sure if there was an education reporter at the Post, which is the uh, school newspaper. And um, I think that that would just be the way to go, having an education journalism course in your uh, program. I yeah. think on a, oh, oh, sorry. Uh, on a related front, just in terms of how people approach being an education journalist, maybe more this is like for hiring managers, uh, if people are hiring <laughs> in journalism, but to respect the education beat as it's not a stepping stone beat. It's yeah. not tr a beat that you want to do for a year or two and then go on to something that you deem as being better. I feel like that's a little like uh, chip on the shoulder that education journalists have that 
you know, it's a beat that if you really want to do it well, you have to really immerse yourself. And it could be something that you see yourself like I always want to cover higher ed. I find it the most fascinating beat, the beat with the most impact uh, in terms of social mobility, et cetera. So I feel like people, if they kind of respect the beat, and to Cameron's point, are more educated before, you know, taking a potential job or putting more, I think, more resources should be put towards being involved in education journalism, too. And uh, people should not be afraid of reaching out. Uh, you know, I'm very much so, as long as you're not a public official, if you're just a teacher, student, whatever, uh, I am, I want to listen to you, you know, and I'm not going to put you on blast, so to speak. Some people are really scared of that because people often don't get the chance to talk to journalists, you know. Uh, it's like, I feel like sometimes when journalists show up, it's usually on the worst day of your life, and, and we need to do a better job of making sure that that's not the case all the time, of course, uh, but... Yeah, and a quick note about uh, OU Athens, too. I mean, so I, I worked at the Athens News down in, down in Athens, and, uh, you know, I was the only, I was, like, the associate editor, and then there was an editor, only two reporters in the newsroom, you know. At the other paper, there was, like, you know, two, maybe. And now, with the two newspapers that are there, like, they share staff, and there's maybe, like, one or two reporters between two newspapers, so it's really shrunk quite a bit there, for sure. Definitely no education reporter down there that's focused just on education. I think to Connor's point too, and sorry, this is diverting from the text question, but just another real quick thing. We also have to be, to your point, doing a better job of explaining what we do and how we do it. And especially when I'm talking to college students, because the internet is a crazy thing. And so it will, you know, you can talk to me uh, for a story that might live on forever. And that's something I take a really, I feel really responsible for any, any person I talk to, but especially college students. So before we go on the record, I just, talk to them we just kick it I would say what questions do you know we chit chat about life or whatever and then I say what questions do you have about me about my process where this will go how this will you know how the story is constructed and we'll just talk maybe for 15 minutes if so I can explain what we're doing and make them comfortable and if at any time they're not comfortable I say hey you know it's lovely meeting you you know let's stay in touch let's you know keep in contact but then you know I, we might not talk for the story and that's fine and cool and I think more journalists to Connor's point need to do a better job about being frank and being open with people about you know how the sausage is made I guess uh, mm -hmm. on our side of things so the product is better for everyone and more easily consumed by everyone too. I'm going to step out of my moderator role for a second, too, and just say I think schools need to also try to find ways to open their doors to the community more and invite people in. I think some statistic like 20 to 25 percent of the population has a connection to a school, but that leaves quite a large percentage of the population that doesn't necessarily have a connection to the school. So how do we invite people into those spaces to see what's going on? I've seen firsthand the impact of inviting people who aren't necessarily connected to a specific school into a building to see what happens inside. I think people tend to have that um, predisposition of what's happening, especially maybe in more urban schools, and that might not actually be the case. And if we were able to <laughs> safely invite people in, they would see firsthand the amazing innovation and educational experiences that are happening every day. One more question. As journalists, you're some of the most well-informed citizens, yet you were required to work with objectivity. How do you handle that tension? I have a little room that I go to and I scream. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, 
I think that it, I mean, we all probably have our own methods of, of kind of coping, you know, because it's like y everybody is going to – I always explain to people when they ask about objectivity. I'm like, look, I'm going to have my own opinions. Any, any journalist has their own opinions no matter what. Um, and, you know, it's all about how we set those aside as we, as we do our reporting. We still let it inform what we do. It's, it's, we can't lie to people and say that it's not, you know. Uh, my way of looking at something is going to be different than somebody else, too, as well. So, you know, I mean, it, it really just kind of depends on, you know, what you're covering, you know, what your own life experiences are, what you're bringing to it, you know, and you got to go from there. Um, but I will say it's always about fairness uh, for me in my reporting, and I'm sure it is with, with them as well. Like, am I being fair to people, even if they're accused of something heinous, you know, am I giving them the chance to, to tell their side of it, you know? Um, so, I mean, that's kind of the, the foundation that I come from. Yeah, just going off what Connor was saying, yeah, there, I feel like there's really no such thing as objectivity because we're all humans, we're all gonna have biases. Um, the thing is, yeah, what Connor mentioned about being fair. So I always try to uh, hear people out when I was working as a journalist. Uh, that was something that I really prided myself on and uh, that's something that I think helps me as an educator as well. It's just hearing what people have to say because you know everyone has their own different truth. Um, as a journalist, you have to see what that the, the truth is. You know, there may be multiple truths, but you have to see what is reportable, for one, because you might not be able to report everything that is said. And then you have to provide that context to where the community is, is informed. Um, so yeah, that context, I think, is so important because, like I said, there's real, no such thing as objectivity. Uh, we all have different biases about a lot of different things. So it's really impossible to be objective. But I think that, yeah, being fair is, is the key. Connor has his room that he goes and screams. <laughs> I have my couch that I sit with my dog and my husband and watch The Real Housewives and scroll on TikTok. <laughs> so everybody has their, uh, their something there. But I think, too, to both of your points, there is no objectivity. We try our best. Everyone brings their own unique background to the table, which is both seen and unseen. My I come from a lower income, uh, first generation family, and uh, first generation in my, f in my family to go to college, rather. And so that's you know the prerogative that I bring to my stories and my framework. So everyone has their something that they are bringing to the table and how they view the world and how they view the <coughs> stories. But to Cameron's point, always keeping the truth and fairness top of mind. Thank you. Once again, to Cameron, Amy, and Connor for joining us at the Happy Dog. Forums like this one are made possible thanks to generous support from individuals like you. You can learn more about how to become a guardian of free speech, like me, and make a donation today at cityclub.org. <laughs> Tonight's forum is part of the City Club in the Community series, sponsored by Bank of America. It is also part of our Education Innovation Series, sponsored by Nordson. Coming up at the City Club on Wednesday, February 14th, the City Club will welcome Felton Thomas, CEO of Cleveland Public Library, to talk about whether or not libraries can, or even should, be everything to everyone. You can learn more about this forum and others at cityclub.org. Thank you members and friends of the City Club, both here and streaming live. I'm Megan Marnicek, and this forum is now adjourned. Woo.